0: Good morning. Welcome to JPC. If you would grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I'd love for everybody to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Dustin. I get to be uh, uh, one of the pastors here. If you would grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians. Stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Uh, hopefully you brought your Bible to church. Uh, if you didn't, uh, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles, or maybe your scripture journal that uh, we're encouraging people to take notes on during this series. Uh, in the blue Bibles, you can turn to page 1131, page 1131. Uh, today we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-17. through 17. And today the whole topic is going to be on Christian unity the unity of the body of Christ, which is not just the emphasis of this passage, but really it's at the heart of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. This is a letter about a church divided. Uh, But as we remembered a few weeks ago, right, the particulars are also the universals. Look down with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and hear God's holy and inerrant word to us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or are you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) Anyway, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, would you be seated and keep your Bible and your hearts open as we pray. Father, in the name of our Savior, Jesus, we call upon you. Give us the mind of Christ. Stir in our hearts a desire for the unity of the body of Christ. Lord, help us to understand what it means for each one of us to be united to you, our union with Christ. Lord, your word says, for as many are baptized, have put on Christ. And so, Lord, we praise you that we have put on the robes of righteousness. Lord, that you have given us your righteousness in Christ, and now you call us sons and daughters. So, Father, we praise you for what we are, and, Lord, may we live as who we are. In Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is the body of Christ divided? What do you think? Is the body of Christ divided today? All right, raise your hand if you think the body of Christ is divided. Anybody? Okay, who thinks it's united? Nobody thinks the body of Christ is united. There's a tension to this question, right? Is the body of Christ united, or are we in a season of division? Uh, Well, uh, I hesitate to call this a manifesto on Christian unity, but I like that idea that today it's going to be a sermon on Christian unity. And one of the, the markers of Paul's writings is he often does this thing that theologians will call the indicative followed by the imperative. And if you're an English teacher, you may remember that an indicative verb is that which Is like, I am Dustin. An imperative would be like, wake up, honey, it's time to go to church. It's a command. And all throughout Paul's writings, he does this. He will say a reality that is a reality. And then he will say, now live like that reality is actually true. A few weeks ago, I suggested to you that good parenting is looking at kids and saying what? You are smart. Now, work like you are smart. It is the indicative you are smart, followed by a command. So what I want to suggest to your thinking, and what I hope you leave today realizing, uh, and not just knowing intellectually, but feeling in your heart, is that the body of Christ is united. There is tension and division in the body of Christ, but the fundamental reality is that we are united in Christ. Now the church must start living like it. How many bodies of Christ are there? There's only one body of Christ, and we are individually members of the body of Christ. Look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A few weeks ago, I suggested to you that the universal or lowercase c, Catholic, as old people will say it, uh, older times, you know, the universal church. Notice what Paul addresses the church as. To the church of God, this is verse two. The church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with whom? All those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Uh, What I want to suggest to you is that Paul sees the body of Christ as everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now what he's going to challenge this particular church, the church in Corinth, to do is to start living like that, living out of that profound spiritual reality. Look down at verse 10 in our passage today and see if you can follow the indicative, then the imperative. Notice what he says they are, and then notice how he tells them to respond to it. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. That word right there, you might prefer the older translation, brethren, right? And it doesn't just mean all the males in the room. It means all of the men and women. Adelphoi means sons and daughters, It's just like sometimes when I say, Hey, you guys, sometimes I could mean guy, male, but normally I just mean y'all, all all y'all, but y'all don't know what y'all mean, So I don't say it as much as I could (laughs) all y'all. That's what he's saying. Hey, you guys, listen up, right? That's how he's talking. Look at verse 10. I urge you. That word appeal is an emotional word. I'm urging you. I'm pleading with you, brothers and sisters, So Christian, what are you? Are you in the family of God? You are. You are in the family. Now there's a family rift we've got to work through. What we are, are the sons and daughters of God in Christ. That's who we are. Now look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, washed by the blood of Christ, all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. That what? Verse 10, here's the command that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For guess what? It's gotten back to me through Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, what? How does that verse end? Are you following along? Please do. Look at verse 11. For it is reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, what? my brothers. He begins telling us who we are in Christ. We are those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We have been washed by his blood. He has put his garment of righteousness on our shoulders. He has brought us into the family of God. And he says, that's who you are. Now I'm pleading with you to agree and that there be no divisions among you, my brothers. Do you hear the emotional appeal that Paul is giving to us? So how are we going to approach Christian unity? Uh, for many of us, that seems sort of like you know, pie in the sky, you know, a totally unrealistic faith. But I guess this is where I would say to you that what's real is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is already united in Christ. That's more real than the divisions and the denominationalism of today's church. What's real is the spiritual body of Christ. And now we have to open up our hearts and minds to pursue Christian unity. But what does unity really look like? Well, I'm gonna suggest, you know, my three points this morning are gonna follow this passage, but what I wanna suggest to you is that true unity is found in these three things. And the first one I want you to see in verses 10 and 11 Uh, It's going to be a little different than you think, so you may want to write this down, especially if it's scripture journal. Write this down. True unity is found in the apostolic faith. That's an interesting word, but it means true unity comes from the apostolic message of Christ, the message that the apostles have given to us. And we know what the apostles preached because they are the ones who wrote the New Testament, If you want to know what the apostles like Paul and Peter taught, we have their writings. This is the apostolic message. So what I want to suggest to you is Christian unity is not Christians all agreeing to disagree and just ignoring theological reality. Christian unity has to be when Christians find their way back to the word of God. It is in the apostolic message. Think about it this way. Uh, look down at verses 10. What Paul is trying to get you and I to see is that the unity of the church hinges on Christians adhering to the message of Christ. Uh, Paul wants to remind us over and over again throughout this letter that he's not just giving his two cents, he's not just giving his opinion, he is commissioned by God to be an apostle. In fact, that's the first thing he tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called by the will of God to be what? An apostle of Christ Jesus. That means he rightly tells us the truth about Jesus. We can trust that is telling us the truth And what he wants us to see in verse 10 and 11, brothers and sisters, look at verse 10. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want all of you to agree and that there not to be any divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Notice what he says. It doesn't mean that when he says same mind and same judgment, he doesn't just mean that we're just going to like ignore uh, false teaching and just say, yeah, I guess, you know, you can believe in false teaching and I can believe in false teaching and we're all just going to agree to disagree, right? That's not what he's suggesting. Uh, What he's noticing in the church in Corinth is some people are identifying themselves as saying, well, I follow Paul. And then other people in the church are saying, well, I like Peter, you know, his, his Aramaic name is Cephas, right? So I like Peter more than I like Paul. And then other Christians were saying, well, I like Apollos because he's a great preacher, so I'm going to follow Apollos. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, don't you understand that Peter and Paul and Apollos, we are all saying the same thing. There is no difference between what the apostles are saying. So it doesn't matter if Peter is proclaiming Christ as Lord, or if I am preaching Christ as Lord, or if Apollos is preaching Christ as Lord, because we are united as the apostles, commissioned by God. And so if you and I are in sort of a storm right now with church divisions and denominationalism, uh, what I want to suggest to you is the, the compass you know, in the boat is not just saying, well, I guess none of these things really matter. I guess we can redefine whatever we want. We can redefine morality because unity is most important. No, what I want to suggest to you, and I want you to see in First Corinthians even more importantly, is that for Paul, Christian unity is when all of God's people align their hearts and their minds to the truth of God's word. The apostolic message is the compass pointing us to Christ. And so, for you and I to be unified across denominational lines and to embrace the Christian unity that you and I are called to pursue and to yearn for in our hearts, the way we find our way back is what the Reformers said in the Protestant Reformation. They didn't make a new religion. What they said was they said, ad fontes, which is Latin for back to the sources, back to the fountain, the way to unity is when we adhere to the word of God and we submit to it. So my basic idea is Christian unity is found when Christians recommit themselves to not putting themselves above the word of God, but putting themselves beneath the word of God. And this is our source of unity. Uh, It's similar to, uh, you know, as I was thinking about it this past week, uh, it's similar to how, um, you know, the cross is higher up than all of us right now. And I'm on the stage so you can see me, but I'm pretty tall. You probably could see me if I was on the floor. But the point is, all of us are washed by the blood of Christ. We do not stand above the cross of Christ. We stand beneath it. Equally sinful, equally redeemed. United by the same spirit that dwells all of his people. And unity is found not when we redefine truth. Oh, you don't want to think of marriage as that anymore. Let's change our doctrine. That's not Christian unity. Christian unity is when we say, this is what unites us. I need to repent. I need to more closely adhere to what the apostles said. Because what Paul said is the same thing that Peter said. And it's the same thing Apollos has said. Because they were always signs leading you to the truth. Remember, a few weeks ago, I suggested to you that a good preacher is like the sign at Crater Lake. He's not the point. He's supposed to tell you you're on the right road going to Crater Lake, and that's the beautiful thing. That's what Paul is saying. That's what all the apostles were doing, is just saying, follow Jesus. It's not about me, it's your union with Christ. That unites all believers together. So, you know, um, I thought of, you know, I know that's kind of a maybe not how you thought about it, but um, I want to suggest you uh, turn to a couple of passages and see how Paul understands Christian unity, not as like a Hallmark card idea. Let's just get along. Uh, It's actually when Christians recommit themselves to the apostles' teaching. So let's flip over to 1 Timothy, if you can. Go over to 1 Timothy. Chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Timothy. Uh, If you've got the blue Bible, turn right. And then go to page 1180. So this is Paul also having to address divisions within the church. And that same word, divisions, that he's using in 1 Corinthians, is coming up here. And notice what he's going to say to the church. The way the church survives division is when it adheres to the teachings of the apostles, when it adheres to the word of God. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, Look at verse 2. It should be the second half of verse 2. What does Paul say to young Timothy? He says, teach and urge these things, right? Urge them. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, if someone steps outside of the apostolic message, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that their godliness is a means of gain. That is, some people preach Christ and are in churches because they're greedy, and their desire is to split the body of Christ. But the litmus test for a Christian is adhering to the doctrines of the faith. What he's talking about here is adhering to the word of God, the teaching of the apostles. So what is the, you know, the message of the apostles? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians, if you will, you know, because it's not just this one passage, but it's a whole letter and his thought is all consistent throughout it. So if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, we can go to what the apostles taught us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he starts to unpack what it is that the apostles all said. When he starts to unpack, this is the Christian faith. Notice the connection between the unity of Christ and the ministry of the apostles. All right, so if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse three. Christian, hear the apostolic message. This is the compass to the unity. (laughs) Don't you feel like there's a wound on the body of Christ? Do you not feel the wound every time you drive past a denominational church when you experience rivalry between Christians talking about who the best preacher is? You don't feel that wound? You don't yearn for the body of christ to be united if you don't this doesn't mean anything to you but if you actually yearn for that friends this is the compass this is the way look at verse three paul pleading with these christians for christian unity reminding us of the message of the cross for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And here come the apostles. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, Past, present, and future. By God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach the gospel and you believe. One of the ways I want us to think about the apostolic faith more as a church uh, is uh, we're going to bring back our, you know, long tradition of saying the Apostles' Creed before we take communion. Uh, communion is a wonderful sign of our Christian unity, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there is one bread, right? He doesn't mean that we're all eating from the same cracker. <laughs> He's saying, you're missing the point. There's one table of the Lord that all Christians are invited to. And what you may notice as we say the Apostles' Creed uh, is that this ancient summary of the Christian faith, it's going to say two things that you may think, well, I don't know what I just actually profess faith in. And I think probably the two things that are going to trip you up are when they say the words, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Uh, So I thought it would be helpful uh, if you can indulge me uh, to hear some words from the Westminster Confession of Faith because when we talk about the Holy Church and its Catholicity, right, its universality through space and time, and we talk about the communion of saints, what we're saying we believe in is we're saying somehow by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and somehow by all of us being at the foot of that cross, despite our divisions, I believe that the church is one. And we might be having inter-family divides right now and we may not always be talking to each other, but one day we will all stand before Christ and meet him. I believe in the communion of saints, that we are one spiritually. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this. Uh, when it talks about the Catholic Church, it doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. It means the universal church. So it says in chapter 25, the Catholic or universal church is invisible That means it's a spiritual reality, and it consists of all of the elect who have been or are or ever will be gathered into one under Christ, the head of the church. The church is his body and his spouse, the fullness of God who fills all and all. In chapter 26, the very next chapter after this is called the communion of saints. What does it mean, Christian, that you are called to believe in the communion of saints? What it means is you are confessing that despite all of our sin, the church really is one. It says this, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with Christ in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to other Christians in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of their duties, public and private, so as to give mutual aid to their brothers and sisters. Saints, by their profession of faith in Jesus, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in their worship of God. I could keep going, but what I want to suggest to you friends, as we uh, probably live through some hard seasons as the church, is that the way that Christians are going to be united has to be under the cross and under the word. It is the apostolic message. Our hope cannot be well, we're just gonna change you know, what we think God's word says. Although there are many things that pressure us to say that, but that's false unity. Uh, This is why the Protestant reformers used to say famously, peace if possible, truth at all costs. What he means is only following the word of God is going to be the compass that points us in the right direction. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, loved by God, purchased by God, washed new, one in Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, Christian. I appeal to you by the name of Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. The mind he's talking about is the mind of Christ. He's saying, agree with what Jesus says and then you'll be unified. And that word united right there, underline it, if you will, because in Greek, that word united means to mend a broken bone. Don't you love that? The way the church is going to be mended is by adhering to the word of God. He's going to push on, and uh, he's going to go into this, uh, you know, classic Paul saying, right? And what I want you to look down and realize in verses um, 12 through 13 uh, is sort of my second point, the uh, thing I want you to consider is that true unity is found when we remember our union in Christ, that what actually indwells us is the spirit of Christ and your spirit like this, right? So true unity in the church is found when we adhere to the apostolic message, and it's found when we remember that our faith is all about being in Christ. Me and Jesus are like this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Look down at what he says. What I mean, in verse 12, what I mean is that each of you is saying, one says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Let me rephrase that question. Is the body of Christ divided? Most of us said, yeah. What does Paul want you to answer that rhetorical question with? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. All of these questions are meant to be answered. Oh, of course not. That's ridiculous. But, you know, you know, two weeks ago I suggested to you that the particulars are often the universals, right? So like particular places help us understand more broadly the rest of the world, right? So the particular problems of the church in Corinth, amazingly, are still the same problems that we have today. Uh, If you look down, you know, why does he list these names of people? Well, it's because people in the church of Corinth had had Paul as their pastor. And we know that Peter and his wife would travel through the Asia Minor and ultimately Peter makes his way to Rome where he's crucif- crucified and killed just like Paul is. But it's almost without a doubt that Peter had come to this church. Also, Apollos had come to this church. And if you're thinking, who the, who the heck are these three guys? Well, remember, Cephas is just uh, his nickname in Aramaic. It means rock. You know, I like to think of Peter's nickname as Rocky. You know, that may be the easiest way to think about it. You know, but you have to remember that there is a multi-ethnic community in the church. Um, they all come from different places and they all talk different. And blood is often thicker than water, y'all. And the tendency is for birds of a feather to flock together. And so a lot of commentators are saying, well, why would, be, why would people be tempted to move into these camps? And I don't know if this is true, but kind of sounds like it might be true. And that is in the church in Corinth, there were people who were maybe a little bit more loosey-goosey in their worship, you know, kind of into speaking tongues and stuff. And they were sort of into eating barbecue. And Paul's like, yeah, eat the pork, go for it, you know, hooray. Let's speak in tongues. Let's be loosey-goosey. And there may have been some people who might have been a little bit more Presbyterian, if you know what I mean. A little bit more buttoned up. <laughs> and then Peter comes along, and Peter's maybe a little bit more buttoned up than Paul had been. And they're like, mm, I don't like this guy so much. I like Peter. Peter's my boy. We know there, at some point in their lives there was a tension because Paul was happily eating with Gentiles. And Peter, Rocky. Actually, stops eating around Gentiles and only chooses to eat with Jews. And he wounds the body of Christ. In fact, Paul says, you are not keeping in step with the gospel of Christ. And Paul has to publicly call Peter out and say, we are called to eat with everybody. Don't just revert to birds of a feather flock together, Peter. So this may be part of the dynamic is some people, for whatever reason, migrate towards Paul and some people migrate towards Peter. What we know about Apollos, if you read the book of Acts, is Apollos was from uh, Alexandria, and he was an amazing preacher. He's known as being eloquent in speech. And so he might have just been the best preacher they had heard. And they said, well, I don't like Peter or Paul. I like Apollos. And then apparently some people said the right thing, but they meant it in the wrong way. You ever met a Christian who can do that, say the right thing, but kind of in a judgmental way? It's like, you're right, but I don't like it. (laughs) I don't know if your heart's in it. And apparently some Christians were going to say, well, I follow, you know, I follow Christ, which ironically is the right thing to say. But their hearts weren't in it. So this was a particular problem. Is that a universal problem? Are Christians still today saying, I'm one of those guys' boys. I'm, I'm like a R.C. Sproul kind of Christian. I'm like a this guy kind of Christian. What would the apostles tell you they would tell you we're all preaching christ we are signs pointing you to the national park do not take a selfie in front of the sign (laughs) go see the beauty of the national park i guess you know what small way we could do this uh, you know, as I've reflected on this and been chewing on First Corinthians, you know, one small way that like I'm trying to approach this. And I know this, I mean, to me, this sounds like totally um, unrealistic. And the unity of the body of Christ today, I mean, it does seem very hard uh, in today's state of the church, but I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and I have hope. Uh, and so I'm trying to align as best I can my life uh, towards this. So I guess what I mean is, um, Christian, we don't have to accept the status quo of today's fractured church. You don't have to accept the status quo. We don't have to just splinter into 10,000 little shards. You don't have to accept that. You don't have to give over that the church is hopelessly lost and we're all divided forever. You don't have to accept the status quo, number one, because Christ is not actually divided. We are one, and two, you have the compass in your hand, (laughs) The unity of the body of Christ is found when Christians of all stripes adhere more closely to the word of God. Uh, we don't have to accept the status quo. Uh, think about it this way. Think about it for just a second. Think about our heritage, our, our history as Christians. Um, the guy who translated the Bible into English, you know, the first guy to translate the Greek and Hebrew Bible into English, anybody know what his name was? William... Tyndale. Every English translation is based off of his work. How did William Tyndale's life end during the Reformation? Anybody want to take a guess? He was martyred. He was first strangled and then they burned his body. His major crime was translating the Bible into English. Did William Tyndale just accept the status quo? Well, I guess God's people don't really need the word of God. I may die if I translate this. Did he accept the status quo of his day? No. And now you have his work in your hand. He refused to accept the status quo of the church of his day. But his answer was not like, okay, let's let's just change all the teachings of the church. That's not his answer. His answer was, we need to align with what God's word says. I think about all of the pastors in our small denomination, guys like Larry Young, who did not accept the status quo, that when our former denomination started to change the teachings of God's word, what did they do? They said, here I stand, I can do no other. And they've got the scars to prove it. Christian, we don't have to accept the status quo. One small, silly way compared to those that I'm trying to work on this is you know, we've changed our emails and website from Javel Prez to Javel Church because I want to emphasize that what unites us is not our particulars. We follow the Presbyterian style. We're a church. Our emails will still work. If you have them, don't worry about it. But that's just a small way. Christian, how can you promote the unity of the body of Christ? I mean, this is why even at our church, we try to pray for another sister church every Sunday. You know why we do that? Because we believe in the communion of the saints, that the church is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And the hope of the church is sitting underneath this. Last thing I'll say, uh, you know, it's a beautiful Sunday to think about it. Um, You may have noticed to my right, we have the baptistry out. We're going to be baptizing some people at the next service, uh, but it's also uh, a, a communion Sunday, which is a wonderful time to think about the unity of the body of Christ. And so my last point, if you want to write this down is simply that true Christian unity is found in the means of grace I'm using a great reformed term right there means of grace. And what we mean by that is how do you and I tap into the grace of God? How does God show us grace? Well, we find God at work in our lives primarily through the word and the sacraments. And today is especially beautiful because we get to see both of the sacraments, communion and baptism. And notice what Paul says. He's going to talk about the sacrament in our passage. Look at verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name, right? He's like, you're dividing the body of Christ by picking your favorite preacher. Stop doing that. (laughs) He smacks him down. And then this is my favorite thing Paul says, because it's like what I would say. I did, oh yeah, also, as I'm saying this out loud, (laughs) right, he's probably dictating this letter. Also, yeah, I did baptize Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether or not I baptized anybody else, That's his way of saying, stop asking me questions. I'm going to keep going. (laughs) You know, anyone ever read like, Where's My Hat, the little kid's book? You know, I have not seen the red hat. Stop asking me questions. He's like, I didn't baptize any of you. Well, except for these two guys. Also these two guys. Okay, my point is, it doesn't matter, (laughs) right? Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ emptied of its power. So it's important to know that Paul is not saying that baptism or the Lord's Supper is not important. That's not his point. He's not saying, ah, preaching is more important than baptism. That's not his point, okay? Although we could easily fall into that trap that Paul's saying preaching the gospel is more important than baptism or the Lord's Supper. That's just a silly argument. That's like saying, well, reading the Bible is better than prayer. It's like, those are just silly categories. That's not how we're approaching this. What, is, what he's saying is, And this is the leap, Christian, you've got to see. What he's saying is it doesn't matter who baptized you. The physical person who baptized you doesn't matter. The beauty of a sacrament, Christian, is that when you receive them, you are receiving them from Jesus. Christian, when you were baptized, it was as good as if Jesus himself baptized you and claimed you. When you and I come to the Lord's table, Jesus himself and no one else is inviting you to commune with him. Do you realize that? Jesus is reaching out to you. This is the means of grace. When I preach the word of God, you are not hearing me. Hopefully you're hearing the voice of Jesus and you are to hear it as such insofar as I preach it correctly. And in a few minutes when a pastor stands up and he says, this is my body broken for you. It is not going to be Richard's body. He's not saying my body. He's speaking on behalf of Christ. And when you are baptized and in your baptism, it was as good as if Jesus himself baptized you. That may seem like a stretch, but all of the sacraments and all of faith are a drawing closer between you, Christian, and Jesus himself. You and Christ are like this. You are in Christ, and you experience that through the means of grace. To the word and sacraments. Let me prove this to you if I can. In the Gospel of John, which many of us know and love, in John chapter three, verse 22, notice what John says. Uh, John, one of the eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he, that is Jesus, remained there with them, that is the apostles, and he was baptizing. Uh, right there, that was baptizing is not plural, it's singular. Uh, If you have questions, I can show it to you in the Greek. It is singular. It means Jesus himself was baptizing. Okay. So what we see in the gospel of John is it said, John says, Jesus is going around baptizing people. A few verses later, notice how John gives more clarity to that statement. Look at John chapter four, verse two. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, notice this next phrase although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So John can say when people are baptized, they are baptized by Jesus. But then he says, well, actually, it was his disciples who were physically doing it. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says it this way. Baptism loses nothing of its value when it is administered by a mortal man. In short... Not only does Christ baptize inwardly by his spirit, but the very symbol which we receive from a mortal man ought to be viewed by us in the same light as if Christ himself displayed his hand from heaven and stretched it out to us. At the next service, Pastor Scott's going to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are to hear it as if Jesus is saying, mine from heaven. And when we gather at the Lord's table and Pastor Richard tells you, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant that is Jesus speaking to you. This is why the unity of the church is in Christ. This is why Paul says, it does not matter if I baptized you. This is why I'm glad I didn't baptize you. So you would never miss that it is Christ working through the person. Christ through the word of God and Christ through the sacraments. In closing, I think it may be helpful to just spend a few minutes in prayer. As we get ready to take communion, uh, it's an appropriate season to confess any sins, to repent of them. But Christian, it's also a time for you to reflect on your own baptism. It's as good as if Christ reached from heaven and said, mine. And it's a good reminder before you take communion to remember that we are not inviting you to a Presbyterian table. We are inviting you on behalf of Jesus to come to him. Reflect on the power and the meaning of the sacraments. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its glory. If you would, please spend the next few minutes in prayer in preparation for communion.
1: Heavenly Father, as we come to the table, as you've examined our hearts, as we have prepared them before you, Holy Spirit, you have come and enlivened our worship and our lives. We pray now that you will take these common elements of bread and a cup, which they remain, but through faith and you, they become so much more in our hearts and in our minds as we remember and follow the command to do this, until Jesus, you come again. This some more we ask in his name. Amen. What do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.